0: Welcome to the Post-Apocalypse Pandemic Edition. The world has become a misery-laden realm of empty streets, abandoned cars, and what malls usually look like right, like right now. It's a land where everything costs nothing because almost everyone is dead. It's been two years since a pandemic has swept the globe, and shit is not going well. The people of New York have been uh, reduced to small groups living in abandoned skyscrapers, which most of which are filled with desiccated skeletons, junkies, and shit—literal shit. Does it sound familiar? Well, sort of. I mean, there aren't a lot of dried bones lying around, and you know we're not filling skyscrapers with with literal shit yet. In this episode of Elton Reads a Book a Week, we'll take a trip into a world devoid of everyday comforts like running water, electricity, and medical attention. Though you can help yourself to all the designer clothes you could ever want to wear. You may have to fight your way through packs of vicious feral house pets to do it, but you can. I mean, you know, and for some people, that's a pretty fair trade off. Hell, we might even learn how to not die immediately when the real end of days comes upon us. So, you know, stick around. Countdown for blast off. X X minus minus five, five, four, three, three, two, X X minus minus one, fire. Welcome to Elton Reads Book a Week podcast that recently made it to number 35 on Apple's comedy podcast chart in Malaysia. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. The, uh, the ranking is true, by the way, number 35. Pretty wicked. Thank you to all my Malaysian fans out there. Thank you, La, which is, I guess, how they say thank you in Malaysia. Thank you, La. Uh, it really means a lot to me, and I hope to hear from you more. Um, follow the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Let's go, Malaysia. The rest of the world, what's going on? Malaysia is showing me love. Uh, where are the rest of you? You can follow me on all the social media stuff too. Nothing's stopping you. I'm not. I'm not just talking about Malaysia here. You know, resting on your laurels while Malaysia shows you up. Don't do that to yourself. They're great people, mind you, and you are too. Let's all let's all talk and have some weird uh, book-related fun. I guess it, it's a party here, and and you're still outside. We're not going to feel bad when you miss out. Just saying. Uh miss out on what exactly? I have no idea. No. Oh, I'm working on the True Crime Patreon only podcasts episodes as I speak we as we speak as, as words are being spoken. You get it. If you want in on those, think about contributing to the podcast via Patreon or this podcast anchor.fm page and you know, you'll get to hear those too if you like this one. Maybe. Uh, I'll put the links to those in the description, so, you know, so now you know. And like I said in the opening, the book this time around is uh, Mr. Touch, which I don't think I said that in the opening, did I? No, I didn't. Anyway, the book this time around is Mr. Touch. A book with a misleading title that's exactly not what you think it's about. Who was thinking serial groper? Anyone? You in the back. What was that? Rapist? Pedophile? Flasher? What the fuck? No, this is going in a weird direction. Mr. Touch, as the main character of the novel, is, as you might have guessed, none of those things. Uh, flashers don't touch. By the way, I, at least I don't think they. At least I don't think they do. Anyone? Anyone here a flasher? No. No one's going to be honest. Not that I'm assuming. No. I guess it's for the best, though. And you know, we'll probably never know. And if you're a flasher, please stop flashing people. It's not as cool as you think it is or want it to be. No, Mr. Touch isn't a serial groper or flasher or, or any of those things. No, if we're being honest here, and I I try to be as honest as possible here because the shame is for the weak. I was slightly embarrassed to be seen with this book in public. In my head, it has an overly porn-sounding name on the cover. You know, Mr. Touch. And some might find it uh, off-putting when you're sitting next to uh, me. In various doctor's offices I've had to frequent lately. Then I remembered, I don't care. And any such hang-ups about the title on the book that I'm carrying, and, and if it's giving them weird sexy ideas, it's on them, not me. Besides, if you're thinking one way or the other about associating the title of a book with the person that's reading it, then you're probably also picturing uh, that person in some, some kind of nakedly compromising scenario with an assortment of people or, or whatever... You know, in order to justify side glances about having a book titled Mr. Touch. Being that as it may, I'm fine with them being both challenged and disgusted within the confines of their closed-ass minds. I just hope they pictured me with a big dick. A huge dick. An Edward G. Robinson-sized dick. Who saw that reference being dropped into this episode? Anyone? Did you in the back, thinking? Did, did you? No? Yes? Ah, fine. I'll keep going. He is, in fact, the character of Mr. Touch. He's a blind ex-stockbroker slash finance person currently leading a band of miscellaneous survivors currently struggling to stay disease-free and breathing in a largely deserted 1980s, well, late 80s New York City. Did you get it, though? Did you get Mr.... See, he has to touch... He has to touch things. Yeah, he's a man that has... To, he has to touch things to get around. He's a... Because he's blind. You, you see? You can't see. I mean, you... You see. Of course. I mean, you see. I mean, you see. You see... Because he's... You. Wait. Maybe... Maybe you can't see. Maybe... Maybe you're blind. Maybe you're... Bl- if that's the case, I'm sorry. If I offended you. No offense. I should have... I should have thought this out. Uh, through... See... See... When I see these explanations playing out, sorry, sorry, I didn't, I didn't say, I said see, I said see, and I'm sure you see, I didn't mean to, even though you can't, all right, all right, Mr. Touch is blind. Why do I do this? Mr. Touch wasn't born blind, however, instead he was blinded by the light that was revved up like a deuce. Another runner in the night. Blinded by the light, revved up like a deuce, another runner in the... I'm going to get sued, and I'll stop. He was blinded by the book's fictional virus, V70, which would seem like an awful name for a virus if I wasn't living through what is currently a pandemic caused by a virus named COVID-19, which is very real. It's a very deadly virus, of course, despite sounding like a robot uh, from my nightmares, it's changed my view of virus names so much that any of them, named with a number at the end, sounds uh, not only real but makes me want to buy more books for the inevitable quarantining that's gonna that's gonna come. Oh, uh, a quick fun fact about pandemics: since you're here, an outbreak is called an epidemic when there is a sudden increase in cases. As COVID-19 began to spread uh, from Wuhan, uh, China, it became an epidemic because the disease. Then spread across several countries and affected a large number of people. It was classified as a pandemic. So there you have it. The difference between a pandemic and an epidemic. Epidemic and pan. You understand. The V70 virus in the book uh, has killed off most of humanity around the world uh, when the book starts. Hence it being a pandemic. Pandemic. It's also disabled a great deal of the remaining survivors by stripping senses and biological processes we, as a species, have come to depend on, but also have a really strong affection for, mainly the ability to breathe and see. Who doesn't like breathing or seeing, right? Mr. Touch, of course, suffers from the latter, while a slew of other characters in the book suffer from both, um, one or the other, you know, to varying degrees. Degrees of which by the way, are poorly described in the book using the broken-ass slang speak to describe how good or bad someone can breathe or see. For instance, someone who can see relatively well might be called a good-looker, and someone with perfect vision, a neat-looker. Why people have devolved into speaking like cavemen in just two years is never really explained, but hey, you know, poor slum-inhabiting New Yorkers in the 80s, am I right? (laughs) I I, uh, I mentioned the decade only because the characters in the book uh, use a weird slang-ridden street speak tossed around as dialogue by damn near every younger person in it, which is very dated. And I don't know, it was kind of it's like reading your way through a post-apocalyptic breakdance movie from the '80s. Well, if the breakdancers had to you know negotiate the New York streets filled with former pets turned viciously feral dogs and. Roving gangs of weirdos that are armed and hopped up on every drug uh, that's available at the local pharmacy. No, oh, and they—they uh, they would also be avoiding catching a contagious disease called uh, V70. That, if you know, if it doesn't kill you, could make you go blind or not breathe well for the rest of your life. Uh, the rest of your shortened life. Yep. So. So imagine that backed, all of that backed, with a Run DMC slash Fat Boys soundtrack a la Crush Groove, and you're in the ballpark. However, given that the slang dialogue and broken English is used almost exclusively by the black and Latino characters, the 80s hip hop breakdance movie feel isn't exactly. No. Um, well, no, it still kind of holds water. Have you ever seen Breakin' or Breakin' 2 Electric Boogaloo? It's developed a pretty healthy cringe factor over the intervening decades. I loved those movies growing up, but they also hit me as being slightly racist. I don't know. Maybe that's the wrong read. I don't know. I've just never heard anyone in real life talk like the people in those movies. Ever. Why am I saying this? Uh, Because uh, upon reading the book, I noticed a few things. Okay, I'll preface this by saying that... This is all my opinion and shouldn't be construed as any kind of accurate scholarly interpretation or anything because I'm not a fucking, I'm not a scholar. I'm just a humble reader calling out a book on the wonky vibes it gives me. If those vibes are because I'm reading this book with 30 interceding years or more attuned uh, to racial awareness a little more or, or something in between it's, its it's release and my reading it, I don't know. It just It just got to me. Is all the apocalypse world built out for Mister Touch is a rich one, populated by the most awkwardly comical. I don't, I don't even know how, what to call it without sounding like a fucking asshole. Gang speak, urban ignorance. I don't know. Fucking all of that sounds bad, but I'm just trying to nail Jello to a wall here. Seriously, listen. This is a quote from uh, to illustrate what I'm talking about here. It starts out like this. Adidas at it again, only this time he doing D. Thought he be doing A, Holmes. Doing D now. Adidas going to D. Giving A up for D. At the end I hear, and left over from A? What the fuck up's gassing about? Hey bro, don't sound on us. We be talking about Adidas. He doing again. Only this time doing D. Ain't you Adidas? Is that you here, old butcher boy? Definitely. Don't deny description. Hear that? Old Adidas doing D. Exerting his self, living a little. The context here is that a guy named Adidas has been trying to use only words that start with the letter A for the past two ish years and is suddenly switching to the letter D. However, what in the shit is with that dialogue? This lingo is, by the way, after two years of having various English literature, read to them every day under the directive from their previous leader. While hearing a book read to you every day, you might not drastically alter how you speak, but it sure as shit would have it a little, wouldn't it? Am I wrong about that? I don't know. It bothered me. Relegating an entire group of people to barely intelligible, slang-ridden garble is... It's a a bit much. Sorry, I just wanted to get that out of the way. It was like a fly buzzing around in my head when I was reading this book, and it just fucking, I don't know. Uh, These younger people, a lot of which are black and Latino, uh, constitute the bulk of the group that Mr. Touch leads, a group that assembled more or less because of the group's previous leader, uh, a guy named IRT, who banged on a drum loudly in a city park, and uh, people heard it and gravitated to it and it just kind of hung around. Yeah. IRT is also the one who named the group The Skulls, and he came up with the rules for the group and set up the way their little pocket society works. He also doled out assignments, resolved disputes, chose punishments, and seemingly gave the group of survivors a sense of purpose after disease, death, and fear of dying apparently stripped them of self-motivation and brains. Neat looker? I mean, what the fuck is that? I'll move on. Mr. Touch begins after the character, Mr. Touch, has only recently taken over the group. It seems that IRT, like you and me, uh, lost the good fight against V70. So fuck, that all rhymed, didn't it? Busting out rhymes. By lost the good fight, I mean, of course, uh, statistically speaking, you and I, we, is, uh, is that what we, is that what I should be? We are. We're, yeah, statistically speaking, uh, we're already dead, been dead, deader than dead, 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 dead as can be, except more dead. Why is that? You might be asking yourself and me. Look, everyone always assumes they will be one of the survivors. On its face, that's absurd, okay? Because it wouldn't be proper, uh, a proper post-apocalypse if there wasn't a precipitous drop in the human population. If millions haven't died, it's just not a worst-case apocalyptic dire kind of scenario, is it? Every post-apocalypse world is scarcely populated, which means we... We're... We... We're, in all likelihood, despite your best screaming and agony, unprepared, pants-shitting efforts, will be one of the millions, if not billions, dead. Yeah. Everyone believes they're the hero of their own story. You know, ego and whatnot, but reality is not going to fare that out. Yes, thats it's terrible to think about, but it's the truth. The chances of you being the lottery-winning inheritor of humanity's dying embers are slim to nil. Them's the facts, Jack. Oh, don't, okay, don't go thinking. Uh, I'm excluding myself from that equation. Alright, I'm fairly certain I'll end up trampled by a startled mob uh, looting a Walmart pretty early on. It's even likely I'll be there by accident, completely forgetting the world is coming to an end and just showed up there to get some Twizzler twists and toilet paper, which, by the way, if you haven't tried them, they're exquisite. Twizzler's twists, that is. I'm pretty sure you've tried. I'm pretty sure you've tried toilet paper at least once, right? If, If not, why the fuck not? Seriously, how are you wiping your ass? What the hell have you been doing? Honestly, my dying early would probably be for the best. I'm nothing if not dead weight when it comes to uh, rational thinking under pressure and survival situations. I once peed into an overheated radiator with one hand uh, while simultaneously drinking a fresh bottle of water in the other. Uh huh. What I picture, if the pandemic ended it all, uh, would be my corpse crisping in the sun behind the bay window of a large high-rise penthouse in New York. Because in my head, the post-pandemic apocalypse happens to coincide with me winning a fat-ass multi-million dollar lottery. Do you think I'm staying in this house after I win it big? Fuck no. If I'm going to die from coughing fits and blindness, it'll be high up in luxury, as the lottery gods intended. Oddly enough, <clears throat> oddly enough, this is roughly the backstory for Mr. the Mr. Touch character as well. He was a stockbroker financial type who was about to be investigated by the SEC. That's the Security and Exchange Commission, for those of you playing at home. While that was happening, he got sick with the V-70 and rode it out in his high-rise apartment. With his vision worsening, though, he made his way out onto the streets. What a pisser that would be. Anyway, he happens upon IRT, banging on his drum in the park, and then he joins the group, and then, you know... The story overall is about a relatively small group of less than 200 survivors. Yeah, it seems like a lot on its face, 200 people. But when you compare it to the population of New York, you know, the one we know and love today, which is 8.4 million beautiful soul—sorry, hateful pricks. Going from that amount to hundreds, or maybe a few thousands scattered around the city, that's a pretty sizable diminishment of assholes. I mean, you get a sense of the drastic shrinkage that took place. Me? You? You? (laughs) <laughs> we're one of the dead millions, right? We just talked about this. Ah, oh, shit. Before I speed off on the road warrior highway of a gasoline starved death, I should probably talk about Malcolm Bosset. Uh, Bosse, Bosset. B-O-S-S-E. And why I think he might have been a little bit racist. Oop. Oh, and spoiler! He's fucking dead. Malcolm Joseph Boss, Bossay, whatever, junior, was born in Detroit and grew up in Moline, Illinois. Detroit, of course, being the legendary home to the first mile of concrete highway and the first four-way, three-color traffic light and the world's first urban freeway. Oh, and it's the birthplace of hot rods, outsourcing, instigated destitution, and Eminem. The guy that all of rap was temporarily outsourced to. Oh, and Motown, which is just badass all on its own. I wouldn't dare mess with the likes of Aretha Franklin, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Michael Jackson. Uh, all right. All right. I can do something for Michael. All right, uh, He's the king of pop, right? So let's just do a quick uh, search for Michael Jackson. And uh, uh, oh. Oh, goodness. Uh, oh, uh, wait, oh, oh wait, uh, this, uh... oh, that's unfortunate, uh, <sighs> on so many levels, that's, uh, uh okay, uh, let's not focus on the, uh, Hm let's keep, okay, let's keep this light, huh, right, uh, okay, uh, okay, here we go, uh, why can't Michael Jackson go within 500 meters of a school? Because he's dead. All right, I'll move on. Just so you know, information on Malcolm Busse Boss is scant and hard to wrangle because he's an author that didn't want to be talked about like they all don't want to be talked about. What the fuck? Don't they know I need this shit? It's just being selfish, Malcolm. Selfish. Anyway, after growing up on the mean street of 8 Mile... He took the late 1940s underground rap scene by storm by winning amateur freestyle competitions. He did so by spitting verses about hula hoops, girls in poodle skirts, and Model T hot rods. When not smoking chump MCs, he was often involved in criminal activity. As a member of the greasers' street gang, which were often at odds with their main rival, the Sochas, and other gangs like the T-Birds, the Scorpions, the Jets, and the Sharks. He would often end up arrested for engaging in "quote unquote" rumbles. He was charged with multiple counts of violent acts during this time, one being attempted manslaughter. Jesus, that's that's uh, wow. And if you recognize uh, any of them, any of those gang names, you you know that I've been lying about him being in a gang, and of course his. Anachronous rap career. This entire time, rapping in the late 1940s—really, it would have—it would have sounded terrible. A bunch of white guys with crew cuts standing on a street corner trying to beatbox while freestyling about date rape and racial superiority. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. No, why they're all racists? I don't. I don't know. Anyway, how that just popped in my head. After high school, Malcolm became a merchant marine and served in Asia where he first experienced the cultures that would provide the backdrop for many novels. Uh, He earned a bachelor's degree from Yale in 1950 and then served in the United States Navy in Vietnam. (laughs) Fuck that. (laughs) I mean, uh, given my perception of of what Vietnam was like, it's largely been colored by missing in action movies and, and stuff like Platoon and Full Metal Jacket, that war... It's an avoid-at-all-cost moment in time. I mean, would I have shot my own foot not to go? Uh, Probably not. But I definitely would have tried contracting an STD worthy of a military discharge. I mean, I'm pretty sure that uh, that tactic would have given me brain damage at the very least. But I would have been willing to risk it over an Agent Orange death uh, and or, uh, you know, a POW camp stint any day of the fucking week. Also, I would have skipped entering the Navy. It would it would be much, it would be much too easy for an idiot like me to drown. Plus, drowning with syphilis—that's a shit sandwich, not worth eating. Not okay. Not not that there's a shit sandwich worth eating. That is, I mean, you you know what I mean. Malcolm Bossy, Boss Bossay, also earned a master's degree in English from the University of Michigan in 1956. And the you know the University of Michigan, by the way, home of the Wolverines, which uh, was my high school mascot. And Madonna and James Earl Jones went to the University of Michigan, both on scholarship. Madonna dropped out, but James Earl Jones, he went on to get his B.A. So there you have it. uh, Boss, he then went on to earn a Ph.D. in literature from New York University in 1969 and then began writing novels for young readers because he's another overachieving, extremely smart dickhead that is making me feel bad about my life. And uh, he's doing it from beyond the grave, which is worse. Damn it! I have to turn my shit around. While Malcolm was in Vietnam, he started to write his first novel titled Journey of Tao Kim Nam in 1959. It's the story of Tao Kim Nam, the son of a landowner's attempt to escape Vietnam in the 1950s. Because apparently, uh, when you're hitting that Steve Martin brilliance level of overachievement, Serving in the military and fighting overseas in conflicts and shit doesn't fill enough time. So, of course, you you might want to write some novels while you're there. Malcolm later taught English literature at City College of New York from 1969 to 1992. He traveled to India on a Fulbright scholarship and lectured for the United States State Department in China and India. Which, if you don't know all that fucking much about it, it's kind of a big fucking deal. Side note... Another recipient of the Fulbright scholarship, none other than Sylvia Plath, known for her wonderful poetry collections, The Colossus and other poems that were published in 1960 and Ariel in 1965, as well as The Bell Jar, which is a semi-biographical novel, which if you don't know who she is, well, then you should just stick your head in an oven. I'm sorry. I couldn't help myself. I'll try to do better from here on out, and my apologies to the ghost of Sylvia Plath. Oddly enough, I mentioned China earlier. It's a a subject that has been popping up a lot in in the books I've been reading lately, which is weird, but I thought it was worth mentioning for no particular reason. Well, other than it's like I'm being spiritually summoned by the ghost of the Chinese Tourism Bureau of Christmas Past, or or the Chinese folk religious equivalent of Christmas, that is. It's all a very strange coincidence. It's all a very strange coincidence, is all I'm saying. And yes, I looked up the biggest religion practiced by the Chinese people, and it's some form of Chinese folk religion by over half. 53.56%, actually. So yeah, whatever the Christmas equivalent is. Uh-huh. Give it up for accuracy. Where was I? Oh, right. In the 1970s, Boss emerged as the commentary editor for the works of Daniel Defoe. Charles Gildon, Get Gildon. Charles Gilden, Mary de la Riviere, Mary de la Riviere Manley, and uh, Jonathan Swift. The actions of his own, mostly historical novels, often take place in Asia. For example, in China, Indochina, or India. He is known for successfully staging fictional characters against historically proven backgrounds and comprehensive descriptions of the historical and cultural circumstances of the times he describes. Almost all of his works have been translated into German, since uh, 1974, just as they were published in English as well, and have been reprinted by various publishers for a while. For his book, Ganesh, or A New World, he received the German Youth Literature Prize in 1983 in the youth book category. Huh? That's, I imagine that's a big deal. Mr. Boss uh, wrote 22 novels, including Ganesh, which was made into a movie called Ordinary Magic in 1993. And the man who loved zoos, which in 1987 became a movie starring Catherine Deneuve, Dwen Deneu Deneu, Catherine Deneuve, Dwen Deneuve, Catherine Deneuve, called Agent Trouble. Malcolm J. Bus married a total of three times. His first wife, Janet Bus, died after their divorce. His second marriage to Marie Claude Bus also ended in divorce. He is survived by Miss Laura J. Mack, his wife since 1996, their son Mark, and a son from his second marriage, Malcolm Scott Boss. He died of esophageal cancer on May 3rd, 2002, at the age of 75. It was hard to scrape together all of that, by the way. A special thanks to the New York Times for its insanely basic-ass obit. It did help, but only barely. Now, knowing of Mr. Bossier's brief history and attention to detail, I can vaguely guess that he was also maybe slightly racist. Maybe not on purpose, but it sure does seem like he leaned that way, kind of. I mean, I'm no apologist, okay? But I, And I do understand that sometimes you, you may display the symptoms without ever realizing you contracted the disease, okay? It's, anyway, moving on. Mr. Touch and the Skulls as we discover, have kind of plateaued. They're getting kind of complacent in the afterglow of civilization's disease downfall, and Mr. Touch is starting to figuratively see the signs that the group might soon fracture into unmendable factions. Figuratively, of course, because he can't see anything because he's literally fucking blind. Oh, before I press on, the names. The names of the characters are some of the weirdest off-the-wall shit you'll ever see in a book. Names like Cola Face, Mr. Touch, and Sugarhead need some context, or you'd think they were written by someone having a severe, but much-needed break from reality. The names are derived from the previous leader of the group, the now-dead IRT. The name IRT, coming from the Interborough Rapid Transit Company, which was the first company to own New York subways. It ceased to function as a privately held company on June 12, 1940, when its properties and operations were acquired by the City of New York. However, the name became synonymous with the city's subway system, and that's why IRT named himself IRT. Why did he name himself after a subway system? Uh, he lived in New York, and graffiti? Duh. Why does it even have to be explained? No, it seems he had a special fascination with the subway and its tagged-up train cars. Add in the idea he had that in order to move on in the world, people needed a fresh start whether they wanted it or not. So he came up with the rules like joining the group required you to get a new name, a name he assigned. And that name was the only one you would ever go by. You could also never talk about your life name or any experiences you had before the pandemic. In essence, he equates the pandemic and people who survived as kind of a rebirth of sorts, something like that. So all the names he randomly gave to people were, like his, taken from graffiti he remembered seeing tagged on the subway cars. Hence goofy-ass assortment names like Boobang and D-Box and The Fierce Rabbit. What the shit? Would you join a group to survive if they said, Hey, you get a new name that you can't pick. And you can only ever be referred to by that new name. Using your previous name is forbidden. Oh, and you can't talk about anything regarding your entire life up to two years ago. But why? Because our bongo playing leader says so. Take it or leave it, Dick Cheese. Hey, you you don't have to be insulting. Who's insulting, Dick Cheese? That's the name he's given you. Dick Cheese. Dick Cheese. Don't like it, Dick Cheese? Too bad, Dick Cheese. Your name is from here on out. Dick Cheese. thats that's terrible. Silence, Dick Cheese. That actual scene actually happens uh, quite a few times in the book. Ridiculous names doled out to people who are like, eh, whatever. All right. Sure, we can get into how names are arbitrary sounds and letters used as identifiers for individuals, and they're not really, at the end of the day, they're really meaningless to an extent. And when it comes to survival, compromises will be made, sure. But really, it seems a little unnecessary. Technically, I mean, my parents could have named me Dickmonger McTwatsbanker, and I might have ended up. Uh, The same kind of person I am today, albeit probably worse or maybe even badass if I grew up with a name like that. You know, sure, I'd get made fun of at first, but but like, you know, like a boy named Sue, like a total badass, you know, make it could make it out of life a little tougher. Right. I'm kidding. I probably would have uh, died from bully driven suicide a long time ago. Who am I kidding? I suffered with Elton my whole life. Elton. Know who else is named Elton? Of course you do. Right. Who doesn't? I mean, obviously, he uh, he's a retired NBA player, Elton Brand. Do you, do you have any idea how often I was associated with the failures of Brand to build a new Chicago dynasty during his time with the post-Jordan Chicago Bulls? I mean, the guy averaged 20.1 points and 10.1 rebounds per game. Fuck. I mean, seriously, his 3.9 offensive rebounds per game alone were the second best in the NBA at the time. Is that my fault that he didn't get them a ring, despite the Bulls' management seeing him as a linchpin player and possible franchise cornerstone? Post Michael Jordan, I had nothing to do with that, and didn't need the overly informed, basketball-centric bully. I'm kidding, of course. You know, you know what Elton I'm talking about. Obviously, I <laughs> I'm obviously I meant Elton Dean, the jazz saxophonist for the group Bluesology. Didn't think I would have to even say that, given the enormity of his notoriety and fame. I mean, maybe it was the other guy that Elton played with, the the the, the, flamboy- the flamboyant piano player who borrowed his name. But, but, you know, whatever. Whatever! Moving on. Members of the Skulls at this time are sick and dying. Uh, Mr. Touch isn't sure why that's happening exactly, and then, uh, And then there's a gang down the street, uh, moving in on their turf. A gang hopped up on cocaine, raping, and shooting things. They call themselves the Dragons. Yeah, no joke. The fucking Dragons. Can you hear the breakbeats and record scratching yet? So times are getting rough and tough on the old Skulls homestead. And after a brutal half-assed attack by the squad of dragon dickheads, uh, Mr. Touch decides that it's time to split New York. His plan, by the way, a caravan out west to the only place in America that people want to visit more than New York. Huh? Can you guess? I'll give you four seconds to guess. Who said California? Who's in the back? You, you're fucking right. Everybody's. Every Of course they're going to California. Wrong. Wrong. Arizona. The plan is to get a bunch of cars, some trucks, some cargo vans, and shit, you know, drugs and whatnot, medical supplies, and hightail it to Arizona. Because Mr. Touch has had a vision slash dream that tells him, Arizona is the place you ought to be. So they loaded up a mixed bag of vehicles and they moved to Beverly. Not hills, that is. No swimming pools or movie stars. Because they're dead and they don't live in Arizona. Uh, I shouldn't have said hightail it either. I shouldn't have, because uh, as you may have forgotten, the group is in short supply of people that can actually see well. Uh, certainly not see well enough to drive. So as is often the case, when you're planning a trip and you want to do it in cars uh, and your group is mostly blind, speed isn't your friend. There's always a, there's nothing quite as terrifying as, as visually impaired people driving cars filled with other people um, and they drive playing slalom with abandoned cars on long stretches of humanity-drained highways for literally thousands of miles. Though uh, it wouldn't advance the story much if they just, you know, steered headlong into vehicles bursting into flames right down the street from their New York, uh, New York homestead, would it? No. So there's a solution to this handicap driver problem. Of course. Uh, first you put your best eyes in your driver's seats. Uh, then And here's the good one. You drive at 10 miles per hour. All the way to Arizona. From New York. The group's morale was starting to falter in New York with gang terror and wild house pets nipping at their heels. Just wait until they're creeping to Phoenix at the pace of a light jog. But in a hot car. There is some drama on the road in the book, certainly. But... I guess that's to be expected when you're trying to move a large group of people to drier climates at the pace of a geriatric sex cult orgy. Boom. Didn't expect that one either. Did you? If you're confused by what I just said, you should listen to more episodes. Okay. Um, I'm of course leaving a lot of meat on the bone for, uh, for this book. There's a love triangle that happens with Mr. Touch. Cause apparently he's a good looking guy. Uh, people meet, uh, on the way they, they take on people uh, as they travel across the country. There's a kid that can't speak English. Um, they run into some issues, uh, discussions uh, but on, on the importance of time. Um, you know, there's, there's discussions on bathing, leaving people behind. And counting down to the day deserving fitting for a king. I'm waiting for the time when I can get to Arizona. Because my money's spent on the goddamn rent. Neither party is mine. Not the jackass or the elephant. Sorry. That was a weird public enemy shaped tangent there. Uh, probably have brain damage from V-70. COVID, maybe. Uh, anyway, there are a lot of characters that have their own arcs in the book. Uh, according to something I read somewhere about this book, uh, the number of characters mentioned in the book uh, are in the neighborhood of 120. It didn't seem like that much, but there were a lot. The group, um, they split into two to better their chances of getting to Arizona because of history, pop culture, and common sense are any indication. Splitting up always works out, right? That's the move. That's the, that's the move you go to in any difficult to mentally gauge situation. A serial killers stalking your group and hunting you for sport? Split up, obviously. That'll show him, right? No? Guy in the back? No, guy in the back saying no. He seems pretty confident he's right. But what about this time, huh? Well, you're just going to have to get the damn book. It has a lot to offer. It's it's, it's a a lot of mini vignettes and weirdness. There's lions and monkeys and and abandonment all the way to Arizona. Arizona. Plus, it's actually kind of hopeful for a post-apocalyptic novel set after a killer pandemic. You should by all means get it. You won't be disappointed. For me, it started a little slow. Sounded a little dated. racist kind of. But once it got rolling, it it hit really well. Plus, it got me thinking, which is something I always look for in any book, And this one got me thinking. It brought up the dilemmas and interesting ideas that would logically come out of a post-pandemic apocalyptic world. I got wrapped up in the what-would-I-do side of uh, almost every scene. Because were I to survive, not likely, but were I to survive, what would I need to know? Do and operate in the world that is left afterwards, you know? This, along with the parallels we've recently been experiencing in the real world, sent me careening into a full-on study of how to function in a world with a lot less living people in it, and a whole lot more dead people. Let me tell you, by the way, that holy shit, is it a weird, weird rabbit hole of freakish insanity when you try to look shit up like this. There are a lot of crazy idiots distributing sketchy info that will get a lot of people killed. Hey, and seriously... I'm not an expert by any stretch. Should you decide to utilize anything you hear in this podcast after this shit goes down, don't come after my bloated corpse drying in my lotto apartment. All right? I told you up front I'm an idiot. So listen to this advice because it's the only thing you can actually use safely from this episode. Don't take advice from idiots. Seriously. I found a lot of information to be wall-to-wall shit with, uh, oddly enough, a lot of useful porn advertisements around it. Suffice it to say, I had mixed feelings about the survivalism side of the internet. So, uh, hard as it was, I tried to stay the course of reality and reason. Some, I found, could be verified across many legit sources, like the importance of how to purify water. Boiling it works, but it'll use up a lot of fuel. The fuel you need to uh, burn contagious bodies. Good alternatives to lighting things on fire to clean water include iodine tablets which could be scavenged from the ruins of camping stores, and bleach, uh, bleach sodium hypochlorite, or even swimming pool chlorine, uh, which is calcium hypochlorite, by the way, can be diluted to chemically disinfect suspect water. You know, stuff that might be. Now, I know what you're thinking. I remember hearing from people in the know that drinking bleach will up and fucking kill you. Now you're saying to put it in my drinking water? Fuck you, Elton. I hope you die alone. Uh, harsh. Yeah. But yes, you're correct. Drinking bleach is bad. Well, that is to say drinking too much bleach is bad. The CDC's instructions for safe drinking water with bleach are as follows. Add one-eighth teaspoon, or eight drops, about 0.625 milliliters of unscented liquid household chlorine. Um, five to six percent sodium hypochlorite bleach for each gallon of clear water or two drops of bleach for each liter or each quart of clear water my non-pro tip however is to wait until the world is depopulated to give that a shot jumping the gun helps no one you don't want to be the clown in the waiting room explaining you made a bleach cocktail because an idiot on a podcast told you the recipe uh, they might not they, they might just let you die out of spite I find myself partial to the using the sun method. Solar disinfection is recommended by the World Health Organization in Developing Nations. Simply fill plastic bottles and leave in the sun. The UV rays will pass right through the water to co-pathogens in about a day or so. As cool as that sounds, I'm going to stick to good old water filters and other treatment. Still taking a gamble, sure, but it's one of the safer luxuries afforded to me, um, not being in a pandemic apocalypse and dead. The book brought up some interesting you know, thought exercises too to ponder, should, you know, should the entire world ever find itself coughing itself into an early grave? Some I've read about before, others I never thought of. Like, take the concept of time, for instance. Would it be important? There's a scenario in the book regarding the batteries and the wristwatches uh, starting to peter out and die. Eh. This causes some anxiety among the skulls as, uh, as to how they will tell time. Mr. Touch half-heartedly believes that everything will be fine and they can always rely on calendars they brought with them to mark the passing days. You would think that the tracking of time wouldn't mean anything to anyone anymore. I mean, other than coordinating movements among people, you know, meet me here at 3 p.m. next to the pile of burnt plague bodies. Or, you know, we'll strip this place of supplies and leave the abandoned hospital in one hour. Things like that. What use are watches and clocks after the world goes to shit, though, seriously, as far as beyond that? The world treats it as kind of a tether to the world before the pandemic, like a, like a mental safety net or a continuation of what was before. It actually felt understandable, to you know, given humanities and especially modern human beings' dependence on telling time to move through our world. It would probably trigger a good deal of anxiety once it disappears. It would be nice to have a schedule to adhere to, though. I imagine I'd starve without some means of measuring time. You need to know when to plant things and cook things, right? That stupid bit of segue was brought to you by Timex, who wants to remind you that watches will always be important even when time doesn't matter. Buy their newest models before everyone is dead and they can't spend the money you give them to buy one. Do it now! Timex.com I'm kidding. Of course, Timex would never advertise on this podcast because I say the word fuck way too much. And it's a well known fact that I've broken every watch I've ever owned. Do you take it off at the end of the day? Or, I mean, when you wash your hands, it gets wet and it. I'm stupid. The show isn't sponsored. Sorry both to you and Timex. Also, please sponsor my show, Timex. I'll take it. That was supposed to be a segue, actually, into things you'll probably want to uh, have a working knowledge of before the next pandemic hits. Which, according to experts, uh, say that we're still not ready for. And according to the Mountain of Dead People the current one is creating, they're not wrong. If we were able to separate politics, uh, surrounding reaction times, information sharing and planning, we'd still die from pretty basic displays of being openly stupid. I've personally witnessed people still not washing their hands after fiddling with their dicks at public urinals. I've seen it more often than I'd like to admit. This was both pre and during the current deadly pandemic. To say that next time, if it were worse, that people would suddenly discover the religion of hygiene that's been preached to them since preschool and shun the ease of walking away guilt-free with piss still on their bare hands is a noble dream indeed. You're completely lying to yourself, but it's still a noble dream. How? I mean, how? How? How can you just walk away with piss droplets on yourself? It's piss. I don't get it. Just know that if the next pandemic has a 50% mortality or higher you know, rate of dying, meaning that you have a 50-50 shot uh, of living through it, it might be wiser to invest in funeral homes than hand soap soap by the way is enormously effective at protecting against gastrointestinal and respiratory infections but we as hand washers have known that for a while did you know that it can be made by boiling animal fat or plant oil with quicklime quicklime being roasted chalk or limestone and and soda by putting that in there too What well, you fucking do now ethanol by the way is also effective at disinfecting too it can clean wounds and can be distilled from fermented fruit or grain yep It's not just an unneeded gasoline additive anymore, kids. Just mill some corn to meal. liquefy the meal by adding water and cooking it, which breaks down the starch into sugar. And then use yeast to ferment the sugar to ethanol. Then distill it by boiling off residual water and finally denaturing it. There. That was easy. Now go outside and play. Oh, as a reminder, the setting of the book starts in New York. Yeah, don't go there. According to uh, experts, cities would not be ideal. If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. After the you know initial shock and panic and looting and shooting and booting of people out of high-rise windows. Sorry, I got into rhyming and wanted to get three in there. Plus, you know that would happen. People could be terrifying. You might want to stay away from cities. Still, yet, yet, not be too far away from one. As they're rife with supplies and things like pharmacies and clothing stores, car dealerships, libraries, universities, gyms, Cinnabon, sex shops for when you're bored. Maybe a Lego store after you've run out of porn and you're really bored. You know, stuff you can use. Instead of trying to navigate the murder streets of a city near you, instead try and set up shop in one of those close-ish suburbs. Near enough to enjoy and freely loot shops while being far enough away to not draw the attention of newly-minted murderous warlords and their gangs. Um, being that this podcast audience isn't insanely huge, and let's face it, given the ocean of podcasts out there probably never will be, I feel I can let you in on my ideas should I be unfortunate enough to find myself among the precariously healthy survivors that live after the deadly pandemic apocalypse. I'm driving the first tractor-trailer truck I find to a distribution center in a suburban-adjacent industrial park. And owning that shit! It'll have everything I need for a while. And now you know where to find me. Bring a board game. I'm serious. Teaming up would be a good idea. Going into the end of days alone? Not such a good idea. Unfortunately, you're going to have to buddy up. In the land of all that's free, and now home of the few unaccompanied free spirits die alone. So don't be one of them. Instead, you're going to have to make nice and pick up as many stragglers as you can to join up with. This happens offstage in Mr. Touch, as it's already two years in when we join the fun-loving gang of free-loving urban-dwelling parodies. They've amassed quite a few people. It's unlikely... That a group of 10 people, for example, will be successful at colonizing anything, said Terry Hunt, an archaeologist and dean of the University of Arizona Honors College. I don't know what that is, but sure. Colonizing is exactly uh, kind of what you'll need to do. And it happens in the book. But you'd have to get over that initial hump of will I be killed? Uh, that, That trepidation. It's a toughie, but people have been doing it for thousands of years and you can do it, too. As much as the average pandemic mass extinction fan might wish it to be true, lone wolves don't exist. And neither do lone apocalypse survivors. Sure, there will always be these super rare instances that uh, you know, are exceptions to the rule, but just like your odds of beating out God's viral population depleting roundhouse kick, you're probably not gonna be one of those. You're more than likely going to be dead. <laughs> you're you're probably gonna be the dead one they steal supplies from. But you know. Maybe you make it. So maybe you're one of the unfortunate few. Those folks will have to stow away their social anxiety, plus their social interaction hatred, and buddy up in the land of everything that's free and mostly dead. Unaccompanied free spirits die alone. And if you're uh, lucky enough to make it, don't be one of them. Ah, but there's a flip side to that shiny coin of happy people. Happy people, shiny, shiny, happy people coin. There's a flip side to that coin. That flip side is, what do, you, what do you bring to the table? And in turn, what do they bring to the table that makes it worth palling up for? Sure, there's the shoring up of duties and better security and unstable unknown environments, safety numbers, etc. But anyone can help with that. What if they already have a posse of security watch rotation deadweight hanging around? How do you or they differentiate from the helpless victim fodder pack? Skills and knowledge. Important skills and or knowledge that will make you valuable in the man-eat-man race to civilization's bottom include medical knowledge slash doctor skills. When it comes to surviving a world-killing illness, nothing beats the peace of mind that a medically versed person can bring. Sprain an ankle? Guess who can fix it up for you, you know? Instead of what everyone else would do, which is to take your stuff and leave you for dead... Not because they're bad people, mind you. Just, just the, you know, they're just medically ignorant. And, and, and as for your stuff, better to be with a person that will need it tomorrow than with a person who won't need it forever. Accidentally ingest a sketchy mushroom? Guess who can help? Rather than just crossing their fingers, reciting a half-remembered Bible verse, and hoping for the best. Someone who knows how to fix your physically embodied stupidity. Oh, and did you fall from a tall tree and break your neck? (laughs) Well, guess who can officially declare you dead? Because pretty sure you're dead if you break your neck like that. Doctors and people with medical knowledge aren't miracle workers. Use some common sense out there in the post-apocalypse, folks. Speaking of eating sketchy things, having at least a working knowledge of, you know, how forests work, uh, maybe some botany and some outdoorsman-type skills would help when trying to navigate cities overgrown with man's leafy comeuppance and forests themselves. Imagine hiking to the next town via a highway, being taken back by Mother Nature. You stop to rest, and you spot a bush full of of red berries growing out of a a highway's embankment. Hungry, of course, you pick one off and go to toss it in your mouth. Suddenly, the person you've been traveling with slaps it out of the air before it enters your stupid should-have-known-better mouth. Who's that guy? He's the guy that knew it was poisonous, dummy. Ah, I'm a dead man when the big one comes along. God, I'm so very dead. Annie Berry looks fine to me. Anyway, that's a good partner to have around. Thank God you saved that person from a pack of ravenous feral cats a few days ago. Am I right? Then again, it's why you keep a few cans of Fancy Feast in your backpack. You took off of that uh, that body you found stuffed in a Walmart shopping cart on the side of the road. Am I right? You never know when you need to distract a herd of terror-inducing feral house cats from killing your hopeful friend. And this uh, this explanation is starting to take on a life of its own, so I'll stop. The skill of hunting is probably the most obvious skill you would want to have uh, an understanding of. It's a skill that would be woefully lacking in a world too sickly, dead, and dying to run industrialized farms. Hell, it already is. Who the fuck wants to gun down their hamburger? That's why we invented butchers, supermarkets, and fast food. Hunting is for starving people and cavemen. Feel free to guess which one you'll be when the power goes out and the food starts to spoil. Hunting using a gun seems like the one you'd want to toss a lot of time into uh, getting acquainted with, right? Well, I mean, maybe. To be honest, the chances are that the bullets will get scarce fairly quickly. Mostly because in a setting like a post-civilization world, they're they're versatile, and that they can be used for both hunting and defense, defense against people, who will hunt you to take away what you've just hunted. So it might not be a skill with as long a shelf life as you'd think, as most of the country's bullets will likely end up in other people pretty early on, long before they can be used for popping a cap in animals for mealtime. Following that logic, you know, of course, you would think that eating people might be a logical solution to the murder to survive meat to survive problem. However, you'd be forgetting the cause of the apocalypse being a viral pandemic. There's no irony quite like gulping down a person you just shot that has the disease you shot him to try to survive. That's some solid gold award-winning dumb shit right there. Instead, it would probably serve you better to bone up on some other killing methods... Uh, the old ways of killing, if you will. Ye old ways, which I recently found out ye is wrong, by the way. It's a, the Y is a swapped out the letter that is not used anymore. Anyway, look that up. It's, it's, it's great. Bone up on some other ways of killing. And at the very least, a few whose ways to get the job done don't rely on machine manufactured parts. Learning about things like slings, bows, and arrows, and maybe even a slingshot will go a long way to keeping you alive longer, I'd say. Then, there's the importance of possessing even a modicum of scientific knowledge regarding engineering and construction. Two disciplines that will be immensely important to surviving the downfall of mankind and the building of society later on. Everything from giving critical analysis of decaying structures, evaluating the safest path to travel, judging the stability and usefulness of things found in the world around you, Like, take for instance the water purification thing we talked about earlier. What's to say if something is beyond purifying? Say, found water sitting in the bottom of a trash can in the middle of a strip club. Can you tell if it's too dirty to salvage as drinking water? That kind of knowledge is worth its weight in drinkable water. You know what I mean. Ah, okay. Yeah. Why a strip club, you're thinking. Hey. Hey. Because maybe strippers understand rudimentary water purification methods and left it behind to help out other survivors. What? Don't look at me like that. These strippers just have to strip? That's a that's a little... Uh, it's frankly unkind and, and fucked up, if I'm being honest. Terrible. Come on. Some of those fine ladies are paying their way through college. Now, a professional skill set that I actually never thought about as being useful until this book set me off thinking about it was... uh. Pharmacy, being a pharmacist. Say you're on a supply run into a more populated area. You know, you you left your uh, suburban stronghold to venture into the cities to hit up a Rite Aid. You you need some aspirin, some vitamins, and and condoms because you don't know who you're running into later and whether they're down for some desperation-loving. I mean, the last thing you want to do is catch an STD after surviving a deadly pandemic. That's some God-playing-hate-jokes-on-you kind of shit. So you're in a Walgreens or Rite Aid or whatever, depending on where your apocalypse leaves you. And um, you've leapt over the counter, you know, and there they are. All the drugs. What drugs do you want? If you take one, will it work with or without food? Uh, What about the reactions? Allergies? Will Will it do what you need it to do? Or will you take it and it not work as well? How would you even know? I mean, well, until you're tripping out and dying. Then, then you will probably have guessed uh, that you fucked up a little bit, but but you kind of, you kind of want to know before then, right? That's the beauty of pharmacy knowledge, ph- pharma- pharmacological, uh, ph- Pharmaceutical pharma- 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 knowledge, pharmaceutical knowledge. There it is, right? Yeah, nailed it. Sure, I've always been intrigued by uh, post-apocalyptic stories, and I've never been able to figure out why. I think I narrowed it down to the empty streets and overgrown cities and, you know, the decaying reminders of mankind. And the methods people employ and, and might use to survive in a world built by and you know, four people that are no longer around. <laughs> Add in the inherent and personal what-if questions that are bound to pop up. How would I manage? Could I kill someone to survive? Where would I find food? Are pants required or is this a carte blanche on the clothing thing right now? These questions operate, of course, like I said before, under the assumption that you survive, of course, which according to our fantasy post-apocalyptic dream, we all would. For you, I'm sure the next uh, global pandemic that that erases most of humanity, uh, should that come up, you know, hopefully it doesn't. But if it does, I'm sure it's going to work out for you. It's, it's going to work out in your favor and you'll be just fine in the shopping center you've made into your home. I have faith in the universe that would deliver you out of harm's way. Just study up a little before the time comes, okay? Do yourself and everyone a favor and make yourself more valuable than you already are. Me? I'm fucked. (laughs) Just dead. Dead, 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 dead. God, I'm so dead. Thank you for listening to Elton Reads a Book a Week. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to tell a friend by sharing it with them and leave a rating and review. That that helps too. I might end up higher on the Malaysian comedy charts because of it. If you'd like to contribute to the show's production, if you mentioned by name in a future episode if you want or not, you know, I can just send you a personal note thanking you. You can contribute via the show's Patreon and Anchor.fm pages. Thank you so much for listening and please Please, 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 please start reading a book this week. Okay, don't let them die out. Thank you. Bye.